Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In our last two episodes, Brandon Duke laid out his way of answering the question of why God allows so much suffering in our world. He did so by putting forward a modified version of the late John Hicks' soul-making theodicy. In this episode, Jerry Weirwill pushes back on a few issues he has with soul-making, preferring instead a classic free-will theodicy. First, we'll see how Duke's version of soul-making differs from John Hicks. Then we'll examine how soul-making lines up with the four major elements of the biblical meta-narrative: creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Lastly, we'll discuss whether moral improvement necessitates suffering. Here now is episode 364, Challenging Soul-Making Theodicy, Part 1, with Brandon Duke and Jerry Weirwill. Well, Brandon Duke and Jerry Weirwill, thank you for joining me today. I think this is going to be a great conversation for us to discuss theodicies, uh, one of which is soul-making. Uh, Brandon, when we really got started on all of this, I didn't expect, in all honesty, a theodicy from you. I just expected uh, a briefer account, something simpler, to deal with the question of suffering, to deal with the problem of evil uh, and God's hiddenness, right? And uh, you rolled out this whole uh, positive case for... <laughs> how God deals with everything, which is great. You know, I think it's it's much more interesting than just sort of taking pot shots at difficult questions. But as a result of that, in conversation with Jerry here, I became aware that there might be some criticisms to this view as well. So that's what we're looking to do today is for Jerry, maybe you can just uh, get us started, to explain from your perspective, what are points of agreement with you and Brandon? on the topic of a soul-making theodicy, and then we can get into some of the, the questions that you have. And I'll just, I'll just play the, the mediator in between here and uh, sort of steer the conversation. So, Jerry, why don't you get us started? All right. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Brandon, I just wanted to start off by saying that you were very articulate in explaining the soul-making theodicy and in definitely giving a, a theodicy, like a, a full justification for why a person can see God's existence in compatibility with the existence of evil. And so I just wanted to say it was a great job, and, and I appreciate all that you did. Well, thank you. In thinking about how to justify God in the face of evil and things like that. You know, there's a couple things about the soul-making theodicy that seems to be a little bit at odds to me uh, with Scripture and also just experience. So those are some of the things that I want to kind of bring up in this episode here. So I think to start out with, the first thing would be, would you be able to articulate a little bit more of how your soul-making theodicy that you explained is really distinct from John Hicks? Because I, I think there are things about John Hicks' soul-making theodicy that you probably wouldn't subscribe to. So would you be able to kind of like delineate some of those? Absolutely. I appreciate that question. And and thank you for the, for the compliments. It's just been a personal study and that's why a discussion like this is so important to, to let iron sharpen iron and, um, and test this stuff. So I, so thanks for this. I may be using the word soul making in a, in a lighter sense, a less formal sense than, than John Hick or other soul making theodicists. Really, I'm just talking about moral development and the idea that it's a necessary requirement of God's project is for us to become morally developed and that that then entails some things about free will um, and our capacity and the environment that we're in. So, I mean, Hick ultimately became a pluralist, uh, not a Christian. Yeah, he holds a very different worldview than I do. So that's certainly true. And and we can get into, if I'm sure you'll have some specific critiques of him that we can get into. And likely we'll, we'll share them. But the, the core of it is just this idea that there's got to be some kind of moral development that we go through that we're participants in, that we're active participants in. That's the key for me. Well, if you would allow me, um, I can give some of the main tenets of John Hicks, and maybe you could just annotate 
sort of the ones that you'd be like, yes, no, why not? Why, why you would? Sounds great. So uh, basically, this is what John Hick kind of like rests his propositions of the soul-making theodicy on. One is that the divine intention in relation to humankind is to create perfect finite personal beings in filial or family relationship with their maker. In principle, I agree with that, that ultimately we're to be perfected. Obviously, that there's different definitions of what that would mean. But in relationship with God, I would share that. Yep. Okay. He also then posits that for human beings to be a created already perfect, this is a logically impossible state because of its spiritual aspect that involves coming freely to an uncoerced consciousness of God from a situation of epistemic distance and in its moral aspect, then being able to freely choose good. Yeah, I agree with that. If you don't mind, let me read you a little quote to help support that idea. I'd like to share a quote from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy in its entry for John Hick to try to describe this, because I agree with, with that. But let me let me offer this. The value judgment that's implicitly being invoked here is that the one who has attained to goodness by meeting and eventually mastering temptation and thus by rightly making responsible choices in concrete situations is a good in a richer and more valuable sense than would be one created ab initio from the beginning in a state either of innocence or virtue. In the former case, which is that of the actual moral achievements of mankind, the individual's goodness is within it the strength of temptations overcome, the stability based upon an accumulation of right choices, and a positive and responsible character that comes from an investment of costly personal effort. So it's supposed to include strength, stability, and character. So yeah, I think I think in short, I would agree with that, that definition that you offered. Okay, the next point would be that human beings were initially created through an evolutionary process and began in a state of spiritually and moral immature abilities and as part of a religiously ambiguous and an ethically demanding world. Okay, so here's where Hick and I are going to start to disagree. A theodicy that I'm putting forward shouldn't have a, a commitment either way to old earth creation, young earth creation, evolution, special creation. For me, it's just this requirement that we start, whatever the history of the universe, that we as individuals start in a state of immaturity and, and need to grow. And then the fourth one here is that as one is morally imperfect and that there is moral evil in the world and that the world is a challenging and dangerous place, that these are necessary aspects of the present stage of the process through which God is gradually creating perfected, finite humans. Yeah, and I'll agree with that too, that the way I would put it is that the design of the universe is a logical entailment leading from the conditions that are required for moral development to occur. Okay. So now I'd like to push back a little bit with some of the things that I find problematic about those statements. Okay. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the theodicy is about how God is permitting evil, but it also requires to give an account for how evil came to be and what God intends to do about it or not about it in the world. The account of the origin of evil and the present state of evil in the world and the future destiny of evil, then I'm kind of failing to understand how your soul-making theodicy really accords with the biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. How do you see it matching up? So I guess we need to take those piece by piece. And I think where it's strongest is in the ultimate, in its eschatological sense, in, in its end game. You know, when we ask the question, what is it that's going to make this coming age wonderful and joyous? You know, I, I think we have to ask this question was what allows us to be participants in that without messing it up? <laughs> in my reading of the literature on this, it seems like in many cases, people just give God or they assume that God has this ability to, by fiat, establish a sort of moral perfection in that age. Some people will literally say that he removes our free will. Others say that maybe the conditions change so that we're not tempted. There, there's a lot of different ways that people answer that. And my conclusion was that it, it has to be through people qualifying to be a part of it individually through this moral development. And maybe there's other pieces of that too, removal of temptation, a change in the design, some other things as well. But I, th I think that's fundamental. 
I would assume your bigger complaint is probably, I don't know, maybe we share that, maybe we don't, but I would assume your bigger complaint is about this question of what introduces evil in the first place. This, I would assume, is where we, we have some disagreements. There are different theories within the Christian scholarship and, and the, the philosophy about what evil is. Is it just a privation of good? Is it somehow ontologically real in the moral sense? You know, is there some kind of like abstract object type thing that evil is that, that just always exists and then we either express it or not? From a biblical standpoint, we have the account of the fall and that, that Adam and Eve are, are innocent until they sin. And I guess I'm going to say, as long as we're holding to a, a literal account of that, I don't see any reason why sin should be something like ontologically real. It's a disobedience to God. I guess all this goes back to your moral theory, too. You know, if you're a divine command theorist, you're going to have one view. If, if you're a moral governance type uh, moral theorist, you may have a different view. But I'm going to say that that initial state was not ontologically changed by their sin, but that they simply engaged in what was always a possibility based on their free will. So I don't know if I've actually addressed the, the point of your question. Let me run it through ever so briefly here, Brandon. So from a creation point of view, in light of the soul-making theodicy approach, would you say that God's sort of uh, Edenic situation of the beginning was always temporary? Because these other things are required on soul-making, ah. like suffering and everything else. You know, so the fall, in a sense, is planned into the system from the beginning, or or no, it, it just happened that way, and you're not sure how moral development could have happened in Eden without a fall, or what's your take on that? It seems to me that, that there are two ways that that could have gone. I mean, if if all of us perfectly are obedient to God and always freely choose the good, um, then he doesn't have to change the conditions on us uh, in response to that. So... Uh, I'm not arguing that the fall was necessary as part of the plan. I'm considering that those are open options and that God gave uh, a literal choice to Adam and Eve of which of the trees to choose from. And, and he had a plan A and a plan B that he could work depending on what they did. So, so in other words, you're saying moral development was possible prior to the fall? Uh, yes. Or soul-making yeah, was, was possible. Right. Okay, so then uh, working it forward, you have the fall. We've talked extensively about the fallen state of the world in previous episodes and how you see God engineering the fall for our good, ultimately. Talk about redemption a little bit and how you see atonement fitting into this whole system. Why do we need atonement? What did atonement do? And sure. uh, then we'll get to consummation, and then we'll, we'll throw it back to Jerry. Sure. And by the way, this is what I love about this subject. What's miserable about this subject is thinking about the all, the all the actual suffering that people go through. What's great about this subject is it touches on literally every Christian doctrine that I can think of. So in one of the, in the earlier interview, one of the things that we said is your presuppositions about this, your systematic theology is going to really seriously affect where you come out on the theodicy side, like what options are available to you. So now we turn to atonement. For me, I'm still developing my atonement theory. For anybody that's not heard Sean's presentation uh, from a few years back on this, I would strongly recommend it. It's one of the best I've ever found of bringing together sort of a menu of these options. But if, if I'm going to just simplify it, I'm going to say that, that ultimately when man chooses to sin, when we sin, we do. We create this situation of, of separation from God, of we've done an injustice that we're guilty of. And God as a moral governor has to determine how to resolve that problem. Look, I think in different ways he's done that. And uh, when we look at the scripture, he's had different ways of resolving that with people through different covenants. Ultimately, he resolves it by placing one of us who is in a position to, to be mediator between God and man, the man Jesus, as a uh, an advocate for us who fully understands what it is to be faced with these problems or these difficult choices and temptations can sort of bridge that divide between us. I think that's his ultimate, God's ultimate way of, of resolving that. But I don't think that atonement alone is enough to bring about his whole end game. I think atonement is step one. He, he's got to bring us back into relationship now that we've participated in sin. But then once that's resolved, once, uh, and maybe this is a one-time thing, maybe this is repeated throughout our lives through sin and repentance, 
depends on your your view, I guess. But ultimately, then there's this ongoing process that atonement makes possible, I would say. And that's the moral development that I'm that I'm leaning on as a way of explaining evil, suffering, and hiddenness. It's it's what happens after uh, we become <laughs> at one our relationship mended with God, and then what? Then then how do we go forward from there? Okay, so I'm seeing a real distinction between sin and suffering here, uh, whereas in laying out the theodicy, we've really focused on suffering a great deal, especially in your first category of evil that this is really human evil. But uh, when we talk about atonement, we're not talking about suffering necessarily so much as sin and yeah. how God dealt with sin. So it's, you know, their subjects are very close, but they're not exactly the same. Theodicy explains why God would allow or program in suffering into our fallen world. And uh, atonement explains how God dealt with sin. And uh, the intersection of those two, obviously, meet at Jesus and his historical life and uh, certainly death on the cross for our sins. But then it comes to a climax, right, in the eschatology, in the consummation, when suffering is done away with, at least to some degree, right? You mm-hmm. would agree to some degree mm-hmm. suffering. Maybe just say a couple of words on consummation here and how that fits with soul-making, Specifically, the four Ds, you know, uh, death, damage, deprivation, and decay. So, like, are those four Ds still in in play in uh, consummation, or you just want to punt on this and say, look, we'll figure it out when we get there, or what what would you say? So, a little bit like the last interview, this is not something that I focused on is is the eschatological design. The the assumption, I guess, I I would put things in three stages like we did, but, but maybe three different ones. If God's got a design, he has a design one, as you said, an Edenic design, the the initial state of, of innocence that is either literal or, or allegorical, depending on your reading of Genesis. And then he has the design that we are all experiencing. Um, and then there's this hope for this age to come that's supposed to be fundamentally different. And that's our hope. So we want to link those three designs logically to their purposes and then link them causally to the, the the events that lead God to react and, and produce them. But that's a bigger project, frankly, than I, than I initially took on. I, I was more interested in it for this particular age, for a Christian who says, right now, how can God allow this? That was, that was the focus. Now, if you're a Christian that says, you know, I think there might be things that happen in like a millennial age or a, a world to come that might present challenges, <laughs> whether that's, you know, if you think there's literal wars to come or something like that, that's a challenge that I haven't really taken on to think about how we would work through the, the ethics of that and, and God's motivations for that. But I will just say that one of my key assumptions is that God always and forever extends free will from the beginning, the middle, and the end. And that if your theodicy requires that to be suspended somewhere, it undermines the rest of your theodicy too. Because most of the well, the free will defense for evil, this sort of policy approach to suffering, and and God's you know governance with, with some hiddenness, all of that depends on this idea of of free will and the the conditions for that. So I don't know that I have got that to to offer, but I I would just say I think we need to be consistent in whatever that whatever that is, whatever that pictures we build. So would you say it's possible to have a post consummation fall? That's an interesting question. And the, the first thing my mind goes to is the account of the angels, right? For those of us that think that the angels rebelled, that's what that sort of sounds like, right? But I would also say that makes my mind go to the idea that this is potentially, this creation itself is maybe God's reaction to that. What would happen if God creates us, you know, from the beginning innocent? Maybe that's the way the angels were made. This is all speculation. But contrast that with a situation where he, he puts us in a situation now where we are faced continually with, with moral dilemmas that we have to resolve and, and that really form us and shape us. And I'd like to say that that's the criteria by which he enters people into his kingdom. Those that have through atonement, reconciliation, and then ongoing uh, reformation have qualified themselves for that. Now, whether that means that those persons have to be literally perfectly moral so that they could never fall, 
I don't know, or if there's something that changes, you know, they get perfect enough <laughs> that, that with God's presence and some other changes to the, to the design that, that, that avoids some kind of future catastrophe. I don't know. And, and I don't know that I've got a, a good scriptural answer for that too. I, that's pushing the boundaries of, of what we've been given, I think. Well, I think this matters because these uh, four signposts, if you will, are commonly understood by at least a, a good number of biblical theology experts to be the main waypoints along the meta-narrative of Scripture. So, uh, you know, your your understanding does need to make sense of them or or challenge them and say, I don't think these are valid <laughs> turns in the road. So, but uh, what, what do you think, Jerry? Well, yeah, let me, um, let me explain why I think they don't accord. Uh, so this, like why the soul-making theodicy, this is one of the points at which I think it falls completely short. As a theodicy, it's a, it's a system, and you can't take part of the system. And so that's why origin and destiny and what God is doing with evil, how evil came to be, and what is going to happen to it are all part of the theodicy. When I look at the biblical narrative and the idea that God created a world, and I understand the Genesis account to be that God created a good world that is free of evil and suffering, mm-hmm. that undermines the soul-making theodicy immediately because Irenaean, Hick, and all others, the foundational premise is that God created an imperfect world that required suffering and evil in order to achieve his perfect purposes for it. And so I look at the biblical narrative and I look at, well, what is it telling us about the world and, and what's happening? It's that the world was good, it became not good, We are living in a state in which the world is not according to the original design that God desired and that God is doing something about it in the person of Jesus and the cross and redemption. And then eventually in the future, the world will be changed and the evil and suffering we currently experience will be vanquished and we will then be able to experience the world and the relationship with God that he originally desired like in Eden. Oh, that's really helpful. So let me ask this in response. When you say that the world became not good, is that through God's action? Like what brings that to be the case? Is it some kind of metaphysical change? This to me is a key feature of the theodicy is the idea that God had a design that he starts with. And then in response to sin, in response to the fall of Adam and Eve, he changes the design that he, he reorients it to their new situation of disobedience. So one of the things that is important to me is to, is to identify who's accountable, who's responsible for the fall. Cause I agree the situation that we are in, it could be seen as just totally evil outside of God's control. Even, I mean, there's people that have said that, I don't think that's what you're saying, but that I've, I'm interested in that connection between what is the actual agent who has agency for the change of the creation? Well, I think we find in scripture that the reason why the world right now is not as it was when God originally created it was due to the actions of the first man, Adam. The disobedience, as in Romans 5, the disobedience of Adam brought about a new state of humanity, one in which they experience the four Ds you talked about, and one in which it's deviated from God's original plan and purpose. I agree. Would you agree with the idea this is sort of God's plan B? This is also God's plan and purpose in response to if they choose from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think God is responding to the way the world is and his plan for redemption. However, in the soul-making theodicy, God starts from the beginning with the need for evil and suffering as part of an imperfect world. Yeah, I think Brandon denied that, though. Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah I understand that that's Hick's view. Hick's view is that there is no Edenic state, right? He's, he's going to say there is, there is no fall. That's just the state that we find the whole universe yeah. in. and. And I'm going to say, no, I'm okay with the idea that God creates things with no sin and no death, and then it gets introduced. But I want to make sure that we maintain that God is the one that brings about the second state in response to sin. Like a lot of times in Christian dialogue, we do, we use this sort of passive voice that the world fell or it became fallen or whatever. And there's no subject. There's the, the subject is left out of the sentence. Did Adam and Eve have the power to change the world? in like a 
physical way um, or a metaphysical way? Did God do this in response? I mean, as I read it, he declares, okay, because of A, therefore B, because you sinned, therefore, and he lists all of the elements of the of the consequences for that, including, you know, setting up where they can't get back into Eden. So that's the part that I want to push back on, because if if it's ultimately not God that brings about the state that we're in, that the post-sin state, I don't know what to do with that. And if it is God, then I think that's, then we're back to our discussion about, is God right in setting it up this way in response to sin? Uh, before you answer that, Brandon, just one quick question. Uh, would you agree that soul-making is the name of the game for phase two? Yeah. You know, in other words, like soul-making isn't really an explanation of what God's into overall, necessarily. It's what he's doing from the fall until the consummation— that that's a you know you're almost like bracketing that period is and just applying it there. Whereas Hick is universalizing soul making, saying yeah. no, this is just the way it is, full stop. And it seems like that's a difference. I definitely want to bracket the design considerations, like the way God makes and runs the world. I don't know that I want to bracket like God's overall objective, which is ultimately ending up with morally developed persons for his kingdom mm -hmm. that I think he started with from making Adam from the dust. I don't think that that end game changed at, the, at, at sin. I think he had more than one way to do that. Literally we're presented with a fork, right? With two trees. And so look, I potentially if Adam and Eve and all of their children always choose to obey and not take from the, the other tree, effectively what you have there is moral perfection because they've they've got obedience now there's this other question as to whether that's reasonable or possible and i don't know like biblically i'm i'm open to people that have different perspectives on that we're getting pretty far away from from some of the commitments that i made but yeah i, I think from the very beginning god's end game has to be the same but the way that he responds to free agents i think can change and so i i don't know if Maybe Jerry, that sounds like I'm like I'm equivocating on the key idea of soul making, which is that it it requires free moral agency. But I don't think that Adam and Eve didn't have free moral agency before the fall. I think they literally did, and that's why we had a fall. And it's just that before it, there was no sin to have to cope with. There was no failure that to repent of. God didn't have to bring about some kind of atonement process or redemption process because they were already in a good process of obedience to Him. So I'm going to say that there's these triggers in God's sort of forking plans as an open theist, I think of it, and, and all these sort of forks in the road that people can take. The fall is, is the first, is the most important, maybe. Really, all we're saying is just that there's got to be moral development. And the only person that I know that rejects that is like an Augustine or a, or a Calvin, like a, a some kind of strange version of sola fide, that uh, of faith alone that that there's no expectation of any kind of development or growth after that. So I think I'm making a very modest claim that the idea is we're supposed to respond to God and become something that more than we were in an ongoing way. Well, let me respond by sharpening the argument. And what I understand you're saying is that there is a necessity for evil and suffering in order for moral development. Can we say that that is where you stand? No, I'm saying that there's a necessity for moral agency, for significant moral agency in order for there to be moral development. And the moral agency brings about the possibility of evil. It's one of the it's one of the options that a free moral agent would choose. I'm failing to see then why it is actually justifying evil. It's more like that that's actually the free will theodicy, pretty much. That's the yeah. fundamental basis of the free will theodicy, is, which is where I would stand, is that free will is what brings about the existence of evil and suffering, which is yep. how the theodicy is formed, is that it justifies yep. God because free will is what brings it about, rather than in a soul-making theodicy where it is part of God's plan, and God uses it and needs it in order for his creation to morally develop. Okay, I don't. I now I'm with you. 
I don't think they're mutually exclusive and it depends on what, what we think the relationship between suffering and moral development is. Some theodicists will say that literally the suffering itself is what brings about the moral development. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what a lot of soul making thinkers say. And going back and rereading through this, the idea is it's being exposed to moral uh, situations where you have to make a choice that allows for that. It's, it's the practice of choosing rightly that leads to moral development. Well, in that entails the possibility of choosing wrongly. You know, there's your evil and there's part of the suffering that we experience, not all of it. Suffering itself can be totally uninstructive. I agree with you that the idea that God just needs to impose suffering on people to develop them, I think that's totally wrong. And and that's goes in the category of evil in my book, just to torture someone to try and make them morally develop. What I'm saying is I think there's this logical link between exercising moral autonomy and developing moral character. And then it's then you can back up to the question and say, how is it that we have the conditions, the capacity to exercise moral autonomy. And that's when I'm off to the races with, here's the design, here's God's governance. So if, you're, if your point is that suffering itself is, is no end of God's, I totally agree. Well, I think we have strong agreement on the need for moral development, especially as I would say, as fallen creatures who struggle with immoral judgments. The world is filled with wrong choices that rebel against God, as I'm calling sin. There is this need for us to grow. I think that's what you're saying. Uh, I think maybe one of the distinctions is that I see God using the current world we're in and working in our circumstances to bring us to a higher level of spiritual growth and moral development. Not totally that God agree. not that God needs it, because there are ways to develop moral development without suffering and without evil. For example, if you're training for a marathon, you know, that develops character and moral development, but it doesn't endure any actual evil. You could say, well, running is painful. Well, it depends on if Well, but and in that case, I would argue that's the choosing right? You're choosing to train. The goodness is coming out of each moral choice to participate in that development. Every morning when you get up at 4.30 or whatever it is that you go to your running, that's the value as far as moral development, or I guess as you push through the wall or whatever it is that, that the running entails. And forgive me for interrupting, but I, I guess I would say I would agree. Maybe I let me ask this back. Do you think without free will, without the exercise of free will, moral judgment can be developed and like moral character can be developed? No, I think free will is required. Okay. You know, I think that uh, something is moral because we make the choice to do what is right. Okay. So I'd say I, I don't uh, find determinism, divine causality, and other forms uh, of e even a compatibilist form portraying true moral judgments. Totally agree. Do you agree that in order for that to happen, the option, the possibility of choosing evil has to be present? Is that what you're denying maybe? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not denying. I, I think with freedom comes the opportunity to make right choices or wrong choices. And okay. wrong choices are the ones that I'm labeling as sin, yep. meaning that they are choices done against yep. the will and purposes of the Creator. Amen. I'm with you 100%. All right. Well, that's uh, that's some good thoughts on creation, fall, redemption, restoration, these four main meta-narrative points along the way, and uh, I think we've ferreted out a little bit of how soul-making can be uh, conceived in different ways that either does fit or doesn't fit into that biblical overarching story. Uh, let's move on to another subject, Jerry, that I know you wanted to talk about, this whole issue of hiddenness and epistemic distance that uh, John Hick also uh, puts forward. What did you want to say on that? Yeah, and Brandon, I want you to kind of clarify if this is where you land on epistemic distance. Thanks. But I don't find it to be a necessity for moral development either. And the reason why is that in Scripture, we find lots of places where people are directly experiencing God. Yep. That they, they know without any doubt God is right before them in a tangible, physical way, like the water that came from the rock— the gush from the rock, the manna 
that came every day down from heaven, the quail that God sent that filled multiple feats of dead birds from miles around the camp. I mean, all these things which people uh, in Israel were like, this is what a God is doing. There's, they didn't doubt that God was there doing these things. And then they saw the cloud of smoke during the day, the pillar of fire by night. They knew the very presence of God was with them, yet they chose not to obey him. So I don't see the epistemic distance as a necessary cause in order for moral freedom. Okay. Um, let me ask this. Do you think there are differing degrees of epistemic distance? Like part of this assumption is that is that God is more or less present, not entirely absent. So do you agree that there's a range of presentness versus hiddenness that God can choose from that or he can present himself in? And if so, do you think that those stories themselves express God selecting from that range? I would say that Israel experienced a more intimate presence of God than I think I probably experienced in my life. I don't have God showing up and setting bushes on fire and things like that. Uh, and so what that leads me to see is that I, I don't think my moral decisions are any more free than those in Israel. I see where you're coming from the idea that that the claim is that God could present himself more forcefully than he does. I think we all agree that he could do that. Well, I think, Brandon, what you're explaining is why does God choose many times not to intervene to stop suffering? Yep, absolutely. Right? And part of that explanation comes from you retorting, well, what kind of world would that produce where you couldn't... Yep reliably trust the laws of nature because every time somebody's about to get hurt, God intervenes, right? Yep. Uh, that's that. I don't think Jerry's disputing that. The one where you say, if God intervenes, then that coerces somebody into believing in him, and he has to remain a certain amount distant in order for uh, people to freely choose him. It seems like that's what Jerry is coming back on. So if you're not going to buy Brandon's account for hiddenness, then you have to give us some other substitute to put in the place to make sense of the world if we are going to buy your way of thinking of it. Well, I will offer an answer, but I think it's a fallacy to then judge the worthiness of whether or not the soul-making theodicy position is true whether or not the success of my answer is convincing. <laughs> That's you know? true. I need to offer a defense too. So, yeah, and this is a great question because it does deal with why doesn't God act more in ways we want him to? Specifically when limiting our suffering. You know, and this is one of the criticisms of the atheists is that if God was omnibenevolent, all good, then he would want to eliminate suffering as much as possible. So where does that leave us when we see the world where God does intervene at times and then at other times doesn't? You know, why does God heal your friend of brain cancer and my 20-some-year-old friend dies? I mean, why is that happen? Why children with bone cancer? Why stillborn babies? I mean, why doesn't God miraculously show up more? And the answer that I have is I don't know. God doesn't explain himself even to Job and why he allowed Job to suffer so extremely in his life. You know, the question is, is that, Job, are you God? Do you know all these great things about the world? Did you create this and that and the other? Did you roll out the stars? Do you know where the mountain goats have babies and things like that? It, I mean, the answer that he gives Job is that I am God, you are not. That's why you're supposed to trust me. I don't have to justify everything that's going on to you, Job. You know, I am the creator. You're the creature. And I think that that's the way that we kind of need to approach this in a sense of humility, that there are answers we won't have. And we won't know exactly why God acts the way he does. And to try to make an explanation have to tell us, I think, is to be judge of God and to say that we need to know and God needs to account for himself. Well, I could just say for myself, hearing the two possibilities, either I don't know or 
this is just how the world has to be in order for soul making to occur. The second one sounds a lot more appealing <laughs> to me. You know, I, I don't know. Did you want to come back on that at all, Brandon? Yeah. So I appreciate the appeal to humility and it's it's represented in the in the literature. Christians don't want to interject themselves into divine decision making in a way that's inappropriate or in a way that's just obviously not our prerogative. And so I'm I'm very sympathetic to what Jerry is saying. And that would be my default position is to say, well, look, if if you have these other proofs for God's existence and you have an instance where this just doesn't make sense to us, you can say, that's all right. We're in an epistemic position where we should expect that. I fully support that. What I'm trying to offer is on top of that, in humility, a potential explanation for why God would, in along with, with other policies that we think he follows regarding establishing the way the world is, why does he also govern it this way? If we can come to some conclusions about something as simple as free will being necessary, which we all seem to agree that free will is necessary for moral development, might there be some other entailments that we can draw out to potentially give an answer? I mean, I would point out that in the Job account, God powerfully reveals himself at the end. The re- part of the reason Job accepts it is God is there in front of him in the whirlwind yelling at him, <laughs> uh, maybe not yelling at him, but but forcefully asking describing his power. Yeah, and asking him questions and condemning his friends whose ideas were wrong and, and saying, no, Job, you were right. You're, it, it wasn't your fault. So for any of us that were in that situation, you don't have the problem of hiddenness because God's not. I, I find Job to be actually an example of where God deviates from the broader policy of hiddenness. It may or may not be super helpful to answering why he does other than the appeal to these other things that we know about God. Well, we're going to have to pause things right here in our conversation and come back to this discussion for part two next week. If you haven't yet, please go back and listen to parts one and two of Brandon Duke's initial treatment of why God allows suffering, where he really lays out a positive case that Jerry Weirwell is now pushing back on. It will help you to engage better in what's going on here. And if you do have an opinion, a question, a criticism, please come on to restitutio.org, find episode 364, Challenging Soul-Making Theodicy, Part 1, and leave your remarks there. This way we have a centralized place for interaction, and uh, both Brandon and Jerry can see what people write in. Also, if you prefer, you can go to our Facebook group, our Restitutio Facebook group, where a lot of conversation also, no doubt, will be occurring about this episode. And, uh, you know, these are really important subjects that, uh, to be honest, people are not talking about. I mean, I've been a Christian for decades and have never heard a, any kind of a reasoned account of soul-making or really much discussion of theodicy in general in my time, and I'm, I'm actually interested in this stuff and haven't really heard anybody talking about it. So I really appreciate what Duke is doing here. He's taking the, uh, the, the juicy meat of John Hick's idea and uh, leaving behind all the other trimmings, all the other what we might call liberal commitments that Hick brings to the equation. He's leaving those behind, and he's taking that juicy insight of the meat of soul-making and saying, look, can we, can we apply this to the current fallen world as an explanation for why God does allow so much suffering, even seemingly gratuitous suffering, in the world? Now, I, I realize the standard explanation given by Tim Keller and many others is that, uh, well, since we can't prove that there aren't reasons, that God doesn't have good reasons to allow so much suffering to occur, therefore the classical proof against God's existence on the problem of evil fails. Okay, well, that's certainly true for the logical problem of evil, and we can easily see how uh, Tim Keller's, for example, quip that says, well, look, if you believe there is such a God of incredible brilliance, then, of course, you have to also consent to the fact that he may have reasons beyond your ability to conceive of those reasons. In other words, almost by definition, if there is a God, then God is smarter than you, and therefore, 
just because you can't think of a reason why God would allow it, it's no proof against God. Look, I grant that, but it's not satisfying. It's not satisfying to the soul, and some people want to say, well, let's just leave it there, and I'm, I don't know. This is too important of a question to just leave it there for me. Uh, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I'm somebody who is in community with a lot of people. Just today, the day that this podcast is going out, I just heard news that somebody that that somebody has has died that I know and that was a wonderful person and uh, her spouse is in pain right now and suffering and so how do I answer when the spouse says to me, Sean, why did God allow this to happen? She prayed and prayed. She was a woman of faith. Uh, why was it so painful? Or why was she so young? Or why a million other questions? Right. So. And, I, and I'm sure you get these kinds of things, too, throughout life, right? The, the older you are, the more people you know who do have to endure suffering and death and loss and grief and privation. So I want to I wanna be able to give some sort of an answer beyond, I don't know, I, I don't know why this happened, I, and then just pivot to talking about the hope. I think talking about the hope is good. It's the anchor of our souls. It's not really giving as much as I think people would like to have. And even if we can't be definitive, saying, look, here is something to work with. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, so I, I think this is an important subject. Stay tuned next week for part two. And I realize that some of you might think this is all just a bunch of philosophical shenanigans, but I, I, I find it incredibly valuable. Uh, for the record, I was not planning on a four-part series here with Brandon Duke, but uh, it looks like that's what's going down. Uh, but uh, hey, that's that's exciting. We're gonna we're gonna turn over this topic a little bit more and uh, see how Jerry Weirwell can uh, continues to push back and and really knock off, in, in my estimation, some of the rough edges that are sort of inherited from Hicks liberal framework that really aren't necessary to the system. So uh, stay tuned for that. I uh, just wanted to read out a couple of quick comments from our last episode, Why God Allows Suffering Part 2 with Brandon Duke, episode 363, where David Seaborn Jones writes in, I thoroughly enjoyed these two episodes on the problem of suffering and found them very interesting. I have known for a while that Brandon has studied the subject extensively, and I have even told him that I would like to read or hear a resume of his studies. And thanks to Rest Studio. I have now done so. As usual, Sean, you were very competent in your interviewee's field of expertise. I was amused by your inquiry as to the cost of the love and obedience pill. Uh, well, hey, I'm still interested in that one. Uh, so long as the effects die off by the time they're 25, uh, I think I'm definitely in the market for that pill. So let me know if any, anybody knows of a good pharmaceutical I can get that at. Jones continues... I look forward to hearing Jerry Weirwell's take, but I find these theodicies and examinations of the problem of evil and suffering, such as this soul-making or character-forming solution, often too exclusively focused on humans. Why do animals suffer so much? I am not thinking so much of the horrific cruelty of men toward animals. We could explain that, if maybe not in a satisfactory manner, by the free will of wicked humans, of which animals are the most unfortunate victims. But even in the wild... In their natural habitats, away from perverse humans, animals have a wretched lot. For one animal to survive, another has to be mauled, clawed, and bitten to death or eaten alive. The insect kingdom is also very cruel. We could ascribe this to the fall, even though animals never sinned, as apparently animals were all herbivorous before the fall, as thankfully it seems they will also be after the restoration but it doesn't seem that they could have simply transitioned from herbivorous to carnivorous without some new act of creation occurring, giving them sharp claws, lethal incisors, and fangs connected to venom sacs. Boy, that is a, that is a juicy paragraph there, David. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for writing in on this subject. He continues, I have listened a couple of times to podcast 89 of Dale Tuggy's Trinity's Dr. Trent Doherty on the problem of animal pain, Whereas Dr. Doherty's views that animals will be compensated for their suffering at the resurrection, or as he believes in heaven, offers some hope, it still doesn't explain why animals should suffer so horrifically now. I believe that if every animal who has ever suffered were to be resurrected, the earth probably wouldn't be big enough to contain them all. I think you're right about that. 
And finally, he concludes, I don't know why so many of the worst things begin with the letter D, like death, decay, deprivation, disease, disaster, dread, destruction, despair, doom, damnation, devil, demon, demolition, disintegration, dysentery, thanks for throwing that in, and desolation. I hope that David uh, is an exception. I also hope that uh, you, David, are an exception to bad words that start with the letter D. Uh, Brandon Duke himself wrote in a response to Seaborn Jones here saying, The problem of animal pain is one I struggle with too. The closest answer I've come to is that from Michael Murray in his book, Nature, Red in Tooth and Claw. Basically, he argues that they don't have, that is animals, the level of self-awareness that humans do to reflect on pain in a first-person perspective. As I said, it's the closest thing I've found and I'm still searching. It's interesting, I also came across Michael Murray some time ago, uh, about six years ago, on Unbelievable, the podcast. They had a nice episode. This is from October 11th, 2014, Michael Murray versus Phil Harper, and the topic was Animal Suffering in God, in which Michael Murray laid out this whole idea of animal pain, that animals experience pain, but they're not aware of the fact that they are experiencing pain. There, there's some sort of secondary meta-reality, a, a psychological state, we call it consciousness maybe, that the animal kingdom is not privy to, that that humans do experience. And, and that difference really ameliorates the problem to such a large degree. If you're interested in the whole question of animal pain, I would recommend either getting his book that Brandon just recommended here, which I which I haven't gotten myself, or just listening to this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode, either in your device or at restitutio.org under episode 364, so that you can listen to that debate that's between a Christian and an atheist. Michael Murray is the name of the Christian guy who is addressing this issue. To be honest, um, this is not even something that's on my radar, guys, so I'm, I'm, I appreciate you bringing it up uh, because it is something that does need an answer, right? Admittedly, my focus is on humans, and I don't honestly see that changing much. So if uh, somebody else <laughs> wants to uh, get a, a more robust answer to this and bring it forth, uh, I would love to benefit from that myself. All right, well, that's enough for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. And thanks to those of you who are doing that. It makes a big difference. Stay tuned for next week for the last part of this conversation on suffering and evil and hiddenness. We're on the hiddenness subject right now. We just got into it, but we haven't finished it yet. We'll finish that up next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.